Welcome, gentle listener, and hearken to me hither. I wish to share with thee a sumptuous tale of desire. Reading alone certainly has its place, but some activities are rather more pleasant when shared. The annals of female erotica scarcely receive the accolades they hot. More's the pity. So it is that I seek to pay homage and tip my cap to the literary titans of our age. Let us escape together in wonderment, mystery, and lusty exultation, for these are bleak and uncertain times indeed. Perhaps within the dewy revelry of pulpy romance, we may hope to pluck away our cares and quench the communal thirst of our voracious appetites. Together, we shall curry the favor of gentle solace and ascend to the ethereal plane of our own imagination. Perhaps as we bask in the afterglow of titillation, we may kindle the fires for a brighter tomorrow. Or perhaps tis no more than a brief chance to get our proverbial rocks off. I beseech thee, nuzzle into your headphones and allow this humble token of slightly more than friendship to caress the trembling inner chambers of your mind. Mon amis, what better way to premiere season two of Moist Lily than by traversing the language of love with French auteur and veritable Marc de culture, Guilhem Lecabre. Monsieur Lecabre's lobster is an avant-garde crustacean caper. Scurry back to your peasants' quarters, Leo, because this crawdaddy is the Titanic's true Casanova. To set the scene, we must first set the table, wherein, slated to be plated, a cacophony of chaos posits an unlikely chance for our eponymous lobster's escape. Our recently seasoned hard-boiled heroes, close brush with death, imbues lobster with superpowers in league with Neptune himself. These new crustacean sensations include complicated feelings of lustful vengeance, as this crayfish craves none other than the femme fatale who dined upon his dear old dad. But will this barnacle-encrusted bay escape the sinking ship with his bonny bell? And what will society make of such a clandestine union of surf and turf? Fellow voyeurs, I hope you shall enjoy this half-cooked allegorical opus about coming out of one shell. After all, we all need a pinch of magic in our love lives. Bon appétit. Lobster didn't want to go. He put up a fight. The fisherman grabbed him by the tail and pulled him out of the pot, tied his pincers, threw him into a crate on top of the other lobsters. His shell stank of contact with human hands. Lobster's mum and dad were also aboard. He thought of his brother, remembered the smell of rotting fish in the water the day he disappeared. The same smell of bloody fish heads 
that had enticed Lobster and all the others into these death crates. The crate was full. The fishermen covered their catch with a thick layer of fresh seaweed, nailed down the lid. Only rays of light came through the planks. The lobster could see nothing outside. They were all terrified, and so squashed they were unable to move. They could hear the trawler creaking, voices shouting to make themselves heard over the spray. The sea was raging. The wind bent the poles on the boys, submerging the flags on the lobster pots. This was Lobster and his companions' first experience of the rolling sea, quite different from the deep currents. They all felt sick, and that's without counting the human stink. The rolling calmed, the voices returned. The crates were unloaded and stacked on top of each other. For the first time, the lobsters heard the sound of hooves on cobblestone clay and gravel. For the first time, they smelled the fragrances of rural spring, fruit trees in blossom, luxuriant wet grass, and a lily of the valley early that year. Then the cobblestones again. Voices, shouts. The iron wheels came to a halt, silent now. The lobsters were unloaded, transported, they discovered the metallic music of kitchen utensils. Then other voices, new shouts. The lids were taken off. Some of the lobsters hadn't survived the slow suffocation of their dry journey. The rest were tipped into aquariums. Huge, unbelievably luxurious aquariums. With special pebbles and exotic marine plants. The water was salty. It had no smell dead water. Slowly, Lobster and the others began moving again, crashed into the glass, unable to understand the see-through wall. On the other side was a large dining room. When the lights were switched on, those able to see clearly in the dark were blinded. Slowly, things came into focus. It was very busy. Tablecloths were being smoothed, plates and glasses arranged, Chairs set out, tables dragged across the floor. Flowers were being displayed, wine decanted, bread put in baskets. More lights came on. People were coming down the elegant staircase, sitting down, appraising each other, looking across to other tables. The women were richly attired. The men all looked exactly the same, dressed in black and white. Once they'd read the menu, some of them got up and walked to the aquarium with the head waiter. To start with, they walked round it, getting all excited as they pointed at a particular lobster, laughing, teasing each other, and most of all, salivating. Lobster sensed their increasing appetite, unable to believe what he saw in their shining eyes. A woman pushed her nose right up to the glass, so close that some of her face powder remained. A very young woman, Angelina, picked out Lobster's dad. The head waiter used a shrimping net to catch him. Lobster watched his father trying to escape from the net. His imprisoned silhouette 
stood out against the light of the chandeliers. Lobster wanted to rescue him, but his mother held him back. He mustn't draw attention to himself. The man shook the net over the aquarium to let the water drip off, carried it through a white door with a high porthole. Lobster and his mother looked at each other. They waved their feelers around, trying to intercept a signal. All they could pick up was the smell of bay leaves. It was new to them, but reminiscent of certain kinds of seaweed. Then a scream, a brief scream, and silence. The white door with the porthole opened. A table on wheels emerged, and Lobster recognized his father on a plate. His shell was red. His eyes were dead. Lobster thought of his brother. He must have ended up like this, along with all those who disappeared from the seabed, boiled with his claws folded back along his belly. Lobster could see the head waiter serving Angelina. She was facing him. He watched. Her every movement was intent on devouring his dad. He could hear the shell cracking, the clatter of stainless steel on china, hear her chewing, biting, sucking. An older man, Maurice, sat down at her table. With her mouth full, she nodded okay, sitting up straight and ordering dessert. Lobster's mother was cooked two days later. The smell of bay leaves heralded the death as it always did. The next evening, a little boy selected lobster, thinking he was a toy. The head waiter fished him out, dripped him dry, took him off to the kitchen. The child didn't understand and burst into tears. He wanted another one. Lobster was on the way to the white door with the big porthole. He was frightened. More frightened than he had ever been. When the fisherman had taken him out of the seas, he hadn't known what to expect. Now he was going to a certain death. He tried to draw enough strength from his parents' examples. He was too afraid. He watched the polished shoes marching him towards death. The white door opened into white light. He saw how death comes about. How all living things go under the knife, and then into pots and pans, fruit, vegetables, poultry, plants and animals alike are cut up, gutted, sliced, minced, carved, chopped, invariably ending up boiled, roasted, seared, burnt. Lobster, the scavenger, realized that in this world you kill to eat. At exactly the moment. Lobster hit the boiling water. A massive jolt overturned the pot. The steaming stock spilled out, leaving Lobster unconscious on the floor. The cooks fled, somehow not crushing him underfoot. A wave of freezing water from the gangway sent his contorted body swirling into the dining room. Only Angelina was still there, with Maurice on his knees at her feet. The cold had gripped his heart. Angelina was trying to lift him up. Maurice clutched hold of her ankle and collapsed, then died. Knee deep in water, bent over and shivering, Angelina tried to unclench the vice-like grip of his fingers. 
she managed only to soak the bodice of her dress, making her colder still. Held captive to Maurice's five fingers, she fumed, Here I am, about to die, and once again I'm lumbered with a man. Maurice had invited himself into her life on the first day of the voyage, following her around, eating when she ate, drinking when she drank, and endlessly promising her the world. She took no notice. His only value was as protection from the other passengers in search of romance aboard the Titanic. Angelina had taken this ship because it was unsinkable. Her life seemed to flounder more each day, and before dying she wanted to taste what it felt like to be certain for once of not going under. For the duration of the voyage, she wanted to forget her despair, because while she had done many things with men, she had never reached orgasm. Excess, vice, and oblivion had led her to nothing but this sorry state. As soon as she boarded, she hated herself for giving in to the pull of this arrogant feat of engineering, for doubting her determination to die. Now she was white with rage as she worked at Maurice's stubborn fingers and thumbs. Her whole arm immersed in the freezing water. Maurice, ancient Maurice, with his dodgy heart, dry skin, and gnarled joints, was having the last laugh, and she thought he was the one who was weak, worn out by age and emotion. Lobster comes to his senses. He can't understand it. His shell is red, which must mean they've killed him, but he's alive. Yet the bay leaf smell coming out of him is definitely a death smell, the same smell that accompanied the death of all his kinsfolk. It's how his father smelled, and his mother, when they went by in front of him with their shells red, plopped onto their backs with their claws folded rearwards. Images start coming back to him, the simmering stock, the way his eyes were scalded by the steam, and of course that smell of bay leaves. After that it all goes black, right until his awakening in this cold, salty seawater. Alive! He's got to accept that he's alive, despite his shell having the smell and color of death. Right in front of him, Angelina is bent over, her hands purple from the cold, trying to break Maurice's fingers. She's not getting anywhere. Sudden death and freezing water have paralyzed his sinews and fused his bones together. In one fluid movement, she stands up, flicks back her tousled hair, and pins it with a brooch from her dress. Lobster recognizes her, thinks, she's the one who ate my dad. Unknown feelings brew in him. Vengeance and desire make his flesh tingle in a way he's never felt before. He's attracted to this woman. He, a lobster, attracted to a woman. He comes closer, the better to see, the better to clarify the shocking situation. Angelina's beauty is enough to bring on fevers, and Lobster feels one mounting in him. His body heats up, 
But it doesn't stop his craving for vengeance. He doesn't know what to do. For the first time, he is being forced to use his reason rather than his instinct. Angelina was so nervous, so frozen and exasperated by the stiffness of the corpse clutching at her life that she didn't notice Lobster's feelers brushing against her ankles. Although he was murmuring she ate my dad, his gaze was already climbing the length of her legs, right up to the satin of her panties. The fabric was billowing around her cold, tense buttocks. Pale, downy hair stood up over goosebumps. She ate my dad, he told himself again. She ate my dad. It didn't stop those shimmering hints of fabric causing his whole body to flood with desire. He was bowled over by human flesh. Lobster was experiencing lust for a woman. Has that scalding made me see the world from a human perspective? He wondered. But who cared? This lust was a fact, and he was starting to enjoy it. He was feeling desire for a shellless body, a supple, soft, silky body, a body with no hard edges. He was feeling desire for flesh, for skin. This feeling overwhelmed him, decided him. He opened his pincers and snap, cut through the wrist that had been imprisoning Angelina. Maurice's body floated away, taken by the current. Angelina thought she saw a little devil in the bloody water. She couldn't understand why the hand was still attached to her ankle. She crossed the dining room against the current icy water up to her thighs, blood in her wake. She wanted to die. She just needed to lie down. But that hand was stopping her from escaping into death. It was pushing her towards life. She shivered. The cold had entered her body and her mind. She didn't know what to think of this severed hand. Had her will to live cut it off? Or was it a product of the madness rising in her with the cold? She reached the staircase and climbed the first step, but the cold was numbing her mind. She fainted, upright and motionless with seawater, up to her belly. Lobster swam to her purple feet, cut off the bloodless hand with his pincers and climbed up the inside of the leg as far as the clenched knees. He was amazed at the pleasure he felt from being held in this way. His pincers slipped between the thighs, prizing them gently apart. His feelers were just able to reach the satin of her panties. Oh! Oh! Oh, oh dear! Um, uh, uh, well, squeeze my sea cucumber and, and steam my clams. Holy smoked mackerel chum chowder. Oh, oh my, that's a bit too fishy even for my refined palate. <clears throat> Permit me to uh, skip ahead a bit. Right, there we are. <clears throat> The scattered corpses around and inside the wreck of the Titanic were floating in water that tasted of stock. All by himself, Lobster had flavored the sea for a few nautical miles. Hundreds of lobster clusters worked furiously at flesh toughened by the cold of the water.
Lobster reigned alone over the corpse of the old woman who had eaten his mother. Lobster was respected. He was the only one of his kind to have returned from the dead. His journey was evident from his red coloring and his smell. Those who escaped the Titanic Aquarium had testified how these things had accompanied the death of their unfortunate companions. The females were so taken with his bay leaf smell that they weren't even interested in food. They just luxuriated in the court bouillon fragrance in a state of continuous arousal. To start with, the males were too preoccupied with stuffing themselves to take any notice of their advances. But once full, they remembered the steps of the nuptial dance. The females were too impatient, surrendering themselves before the end of the ceremony. There were about a hundred females left over. They turned towards Lobster, who was interested only in Angelina, threw themselves at him. Sheer abundance revived a taste for his own kind. He took them one by one in the swarm of copulating males and females. Carried away by the frenzy of the movement, the throng spread out like a thousand tiny sparks in the darkness of the ocean. After orgasm, they uncoupled and stretched out, head to tail, belly up, pincers splayed out, and thus they rose blissfully from the night towards the light. Was that good for you too, gentle listener? Should your thirst for this particular tale be yet unslaked, look no further than the Amazon, or perhaps your local book merchant. I've taken the liberty of including links to the author's work in the story notations. If you have enjoyed your visit, please be sure to sing praises of the lily on high to your acquaintances, significant others, and fellow personages of estimable taste. Bellowing from either rafter or rooftop is cautiously encouraged. However, five-star reviews and social media shares are preferable. Should you be so inclined, one may also happen upon news, updates, and a veritable plethora of other such erotic goings-on at www.moistlily.com. I bid you warm and dewy salutations until our next chance encounter.